0: Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online globally, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI-FM, Cultural Energy Radio in Taos, New Mexico. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you, Walter Parks, for all you do in the musical world. WalterParks.com if you'd like to hear more about Walter's music. And you can always reach out to me through my website, JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And if you would like to know more about Twice Five Miles, you can try TwiceFiveMiles.com. There's little bits of information on that website that might help you get your work over the finish line you can see twice5miles.com. So if you've been listening to this show, and I hope you have for the last bit of time, we've been airing for three or four years now on and FM, you know that sometimes I have people that I have known for a long, long time, good friends I've known for 30 years, and they'll come on and we'll just reminisce about whatever comes up. And I also sometimes have the opportunity to get to know someone I've never met before in my entire life on air. Today is such a day. I have a guest I could say I came up on her poetic work when I was judging for a a foundation called the Wurlitzer Foundation in Taos, New Mexico. And what they do is they invite poets and visual artists and photographers and composers to come and spend three months in Taos. It's a very competitive residency. And I was asked to evaluate 35 poets. And in this galley on number 12, the number 12th poet numbered, her number was like 4732 or something. I started reading her poems. And I thought, who is this person? I had a number, I had no name, but I had the verse. And I was asked to score it one to five. So I gave S. Erin Baptiste top scores. And I was thinking, I really hope she wins this residency. Well, sure enough, she did. And in the course of my work, I thought, well, I could just Google her poems and see if they're online. Well, sure enough, up pops this great website. And there she is just shining out at me and I thought my goodness this is great so I continued to read some of the work and when I learned that she had won the residency a couple of months ago I reached out and congratulated her and guess what we now have her here today as a guest so let's all get to know S. Aaron Batiste so welcome S. Aaron do you go by S. Aaron or Aaron or how do you how do you do that
1: either S Aaron or just S whatever is easiest <laughs> oh,
0: you can go by S and I can go by Nave and together we'll we'll have our our names moving along i do love the one name thing so S welcome to twice five miles radio
1: Thank you, thank you so much for having me, and for that glowing introduction, and also for the high scores. Um, I super appreciate it. I'm very excited about the opportunity to come to Taos and and make art and just stare at the sky.
0: <laughs> There's plenty of sky to stare at out here, and you can watch the Milky Way as much as you like on the on the darker nights when the moon is in its in its sliver phase, the new moon comes yeah. and it gets really dark and then you can see the Milky Way. Sometimes you'll see you see a shooting star as well. Or what I experienced when I read your work was first I thought right out of the gate, this poet really has control. This poet has a sense of place, sense of geography, a sense of home. You were blending an urban understanding with things that were less urban and I got around to the topic of the Duende and Duende was one of the, one of the score markers in the competition. And I thought, well, this poetry has the Duende and some to spare. So I would love to open up this conversation in a very easy way by asking you to reflect on the Duende. And I know that people out there in the listening land may or may not know what duende is but it's a fun word to say and it has deep deep meaning and golly did you ever have plenty of it in your verse and your poetry so let's begin there s and go wherever we go
1: yes duende it is it is a wonderful word to say it has a feel to it i mean for me Personally, Duende starts with just the feeling of the of the word. Um, I am a hopelessly southwestern person. I had three families that did the Western migration. So they didn't go up north as many black families did. They went west and kind of peppered the southwest and you know the California, Arizona, New Mexico, Washington range and so i feel like the southwest in particular um including los angeles where i've lived longer than anywhere when we're thinking about sky when we're thinking about land when we're thinking about especially new mexico where i've even spent i've spent some time in santa fe during the pandemic just kind of sitting out in the desert thinking if the world is going to end i i want to be home even if it's not I never lived in New Mexico but I've spent a lot of time there I've had family there and so in thinking about Duende I'm thinking about spirit the southwest I mean I think land in general but for me and for generations of my family Duende I mean you walk on the land in certain parts of New Mexico Arizona California Nevada and there's Duende reverberating up There's cactuses, trees, mountain range, and things that hold energy. They hold information. People for centuries, even before the colonizers and some of our ancestors came, received information from the land and from the stars. And so for me, Duende, I think of spirit. I think of feeling. I think of, I mean, really something unexplainable, almost godlike, otherworldly.
0: Well, it would be fair to say that it's godlike if you look at God from the point of view of infinity and an all-encompassing proposition, as we are indeed housed in the universe. And so, as I understand the Dwendee, I understand it like like you you do. I I, I love the idea of the earth having the vibrations that rumble. And I know uh, Frederick Garcia Lorca wrote in his essay, The Theory and Play of Duende, I think is the title of the essay. He starts out by talking about how there are three big rivers in Spain that all converge. And when they converge, that's where the duende is. And that the old woman who competes in the flamenco dance competition at 80 years old and all the other young women are around and they're just beautiful doing their dance. And the old woman just steps out on the floor and she stamps her foot once, holds her arm in the air and says, ole, and wins the competition. And he says, that's the Duende.
1: Right. It's a spirit. It's a spirit. It's a livelihood, all encompassing, all in and of itself.
0: Tell us about your poetic work.
1: Absolutely. I I mean, I came to poetry as a reader. I was reading poetry as early as age 10, and I started writing poetry and fiction and, you know, very bad things then as well, but I I wanted to engage. And starting high school, I really began to dive deep into studying not only poetry, but the craft of poetry, biographies, and anecdotes, and really anything I could find, not only about the writing, but just how writers lived. I had a very traditional Black middle-class, complicated family that looked one way on the outside and functioned very differently. And my experience within my family it was very difficult. I had an abusive mother. Um, I had a complicated father. His family came with a lot of mythology and a lot of, they were early Americas people, Louisiana people. And so, you know, with the Creoles, there's issues of race, issues of class, issues of colonization. And so I grew up with very heavy Duende all around that I had inherited and had carried with me with grandparents that came to the West when it was a wild place, especially to be a black person, very precarious. Writing was where I felt the most at home and reading. And I thought, these are my people. And many of the poets were gone. I was reading like Gwendolyn Brooks and uh, Hazora Neale Hurston and just really absorbing and and trying to immerse myself in that world. And so I've been writing seriously since teenage years, but professionally and semi-professionally, I started to think this could be a bigger thing. And probably about 10 years ago, where I thought this is actually a bigger thing than just a hobby, which is also a beautiful hobby to have, but I felt a different thing. And I I made a recommitment to my craft and to really learning craft and working, positing myself to be in workshops and residencies and in community with poets who I loved, with teachers, with mentors, with peers that just loved poetry. And I started um, the collection that I'm at work at now about four or five years ago and have tentatively been planning, writing, dreaming, experiencing lots of Duende, conjuring a lot of things. It is confessional work um, and confessional poetry. And then somewhere in the middle of that, I accidentally wrote a chapbook, which sent me on another kind of path. And then I had to go through the, the publication and ultimately the drama of that. And then I've now returned back in the past probably year to really get underway with the work for my full length, my first full length collection.
0: A lot of people who tune into this show, I assume, are curious about the creative process, how one goes from a curious day thinking I'd like to jot something down and and maybe call it a poem to the place where you are, the advanced level. Where you can submit and can win a residency at the Willitzer Foundation, competing with 35 other poets. So how do you go about the craft? And what could you say to someone who is out there thinking, I'd like to do this too and take it down the line a good, good ways? What, where do they start? And then after that, I'd like for you to maybe offer us a couple of your pieces just so we could hear, hear your work, if you have some of that available on your desk.
1: Absolutely. I would just say, first, read a lot. I feel like a lot of young writers, and I don't mean that by age, but people who are new in the field are not reading. They want to express themselves. But first, I feel like you have to have an understanding of the greater conversation. It's a conversation that's happening with the infinite with the ancestors, with other writers. So I would say, read as much as you can. If your funds are limited, mine were for many years. I'm I'm a working class poet. I've had a full-time job since high school. I worked my last two years of high school full-time. But, you know, there's the library, there's Libby, there's apps, there's, you know, trading books and things of that nature. So because I started working full-time, I left both of my parents' house at age 16, I had to create my own independent study. So I have, for nearly two thirds of my life now, I wake up at 4 a.m. every day and I work for two hours on my writing. And that could mean anything from writing a new poem, reading a craft book, watching a lecture on YouTube, um, doing revisions, listening to a poet's reading, I I set aside two hours every day and it's the crack of dawn. And I hear people say, I can never get up at 4 a.m. So maybe it's not 4 a.m., but really setting up a practice for yourself and taking it seriously. Even if you just have 30 minutes and your 30 minutes is you look at a poet that you really like, because I feel like reading, I always tell, like I said, new poets or just poets in general to read first. And so even if you only have 30 minutes a day to read three pages from a collection, that's something that you've done for your practice. And I think the longer you go on with that, it does become a serious thing. Was I a serious poet at age 16? No, but like building a practice at age 26, I had a 10 year practice at that point. I wasn't published. No one knew who I was, but I was a writer. I knew I was a writer. I knew I was putting in the work.
0: When you get up at four o'clock in the morning, do you do that with enthusiasm because you're a morning person committed to your craft? How does that work for you?
1: You know, it's, it comes and goes like, you know, like when we were first chatting and we were having tech issues, (laughs) some days you wake up, you're enthusiastic. I, you know, I have a kind of quick ritual. I brush my teeth really quickly and I make a pot of tea. I put the water on and I like brush my teeth and get my tea and I get to work. So some mornings, you know, I'm very enthusiastic. Like I, I ordered a new book that just arrived two days ago and I can't wait to get into it. I haven't had the opportunity yet, but there are mornings where it's dark, it's cold, it's winter. It's I'm grumpy. You know, I have a cold, whatever the case may be. I didn't get enough sleep. But I always leave something for myself, even if even if I don't have the energy to write, because sometimes it is four o'clock in the morning and there's no energy for it to write a new piece. But again, I um, then I'll read something or I'll have my tea and listen to a reading or listen to a craft lecture. You know, I can be a grumpy kind of Internet person, even though I work in tech, but the Internet has opened up the avenues for us to learn for free and have access to writers and even to have access to some writers who had transitioned, who I will never have the opportunity to meet because they're you know, they're they're dead. And so even if you watch a craft lecture for 20 minutes and have your coffee or something and just have a space for your practice. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's 50-50. There's mornings I wake up, I'm ready to write, I have a piece I'm working on, and there's mornings where, you know, I need a little kick.
0: (laughs) Well, the image a lot of people have of the writer is, the writer always is constantly enthusiastic, and the writer is always there with bells on and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and all those terms we use when we wake up in the morning, crowing, singing, et cetera, et cetera. But you are very apt in using the word grumpy, because we do find ourselves grumpy and we find ourselves in lots of different situations. It sounds like showing up for the one hour, the half hour, or the two hours is really the key to it over a long period of time.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Just keep building your practice, whatever that means for you. And it's different for different people. Some people might just need time to write and write and write for six months and just have 30 minutes where they write as much as they can. Maybe you don't even have time to revise during the initial kind of formation of your practice. But now for me, it's just it's habit. And I, tr- I, you know, I travel a lot, um, you know, the pandemic changed that a little bit, but no matter what time zone I'm in my body clock, I wake up around 4am, no matter where I am.
0: That's, a, that's really, really good advice. I, I, I tend to get up early in the morning myself, and I'll make a coffee and I do what you may know as morning pages, which is since yeah. which is inspired by the artist way which I've been involved in for many years and I teach that creativity, discipline, and hold classes, and and so I encourage people to write those three pages every day. With that, do you have a piece you might want to read for us? I'd love to hear something.
1: Sure. I am going to read, as you may know, I write long things. I am a maximalist. People are like, can you read a two-minute poem? And I'm like,
0: hmm. You're never going to be a slam poet, I bet.
1: Oh, no. <laughs> Okay, here we go. This poem is an after and an answer to Allen Ginsberg's supermarket in California. It does have an epigraph and I'll read that first. And the epigraph is the last two lines of his poem. At Trader Joe's in South Pasadena for Zelma Lee. What America did you have? When Karen quit polling his ferry, and you got out on a smoking bank and stood watching the boat disappear on the black waters of Lethe. Allen Ginsberg. With Safeway and Southern Avenue decades behind me, dear grandmother, I searched for you in aisles of Trader Joe's instead. As I pause to savor chipotle-smoked salmon and sample a polite slice of plum, I swish the summery white around and wonder, would you scoff at their under-seasoned handouts, too prideful to sip free offerings in communion cups? Would you ponder the entire country's pre-cooked and packaged into colorful plastics? Would the bottled-up beauty curds and curry summer sauces shimmering in mason jars perplex your syrupy Texas tongue? Would your Sunday dress, you'd save for shopping, shame you now? Fail in the shadows of the thin, bleach-teaved blonde ladies clad in Lululemon athleisure, armed with affirmations and mantras of the day. Would you think them? no different than the doctor's wife you'd cut down from a chandelier as a maid. This is what you learned white women to be, free to string themselves from crystal nooses. Whose paler lives the golden age deemed worthy of being served and saved in silence, while you prayed away hollers from U-turn pickup trucks each time your dusk bus was delayed, with the shoppers' faces mirror those rear views. Make you hurried, worried. This is a sundown town too. At checkout, my cashier appraises me and smiles. Approves my weekly organics, fair trade coffee, wine. Would you dreamed in all your colored days this sanguine white girl working for me instead now? Exiting, I glimpse your high cheekbone reflection shining back in the sliding glass and as I step outside to catch sunset, swear I hear humming. This little light of mine, let it shine, let it shine. Our silhouettes swallowed under a marmaladed sky.
0: Well done, S. Aaron Baptiste. The poem you just read was one of the ones you submitted for the Wurlitzer Foundation to consider, and I believe it was the first one I read in the galley of the five or six you submitted. And the line, cut her from the chandelier, stuck with me right away and continues to this day to still be in my imagination. That line was such a quick, easy shift into a gigantic statement using a very soft touch to take us there. Thank you. Now that you have given us a sense of your work, before we go on, I'll bet people are wondering how they could read more about what you do or how they could get in touch with you. So perhaps you could give us your website and how we could connect with you. And then we'll continue on with more conversation.
1: Absolutely. I am not on socials. Sorry, folks. But I do have an author website and you can totally contact me there. Read, check out more work. It is www.sbatistewrites.com. And yeah, if you even Google my name, it should come up and I would love to hear from you all. You can write me a little note. It goes to me. I'll write you back.
0: Do you spell Baptiste for people?
1: Absolutely. It's B-A-T-I-S-T-E. So be like boy, A-Apple, T-Thomas, I-Igloo, S-Stephanie, T-Thomas, E-Edward.
0: batiste BaptisteWrites.com. Is that it?
1: S. Baptiste
0: writes. So you love to go by S. So S. Baptiste writes, when you were writing this piece, is this a good example of, of your style, what you're trying to explore in, in your work? Because it's very, very commonplace offering, Trader Joe's. I've been there many times. So the moment you put that in there, you gave me the green light to just start walking through the grocery store along with you buying and buying your your stuff. So what about that poem? How did it come to be? And tell us more.
1: Absolutely, I write a lot of afters. Like I said, I came to writing as a reader and really wanting to respond to writers. And so largely they are writers who I revere. I have no qualms with Ginsburg directly, but as a maximalist poet, My lineage traces back to Walt Whitman, who I do have some issues with, an America poet that was writing these very patriotic poems during chattel slavery. Some of the ugliest times of our history as a nation, but like, is this America poet? And I've loved the Ginsberg poem for a long time. I'm from California. I was born in California. I love Trader Joe's. You know, it started off as this big love poem to like my grandmother and to Trader Joe's. And I was reading, I was like, oh, I want to do this after. I want to riff on, like, Ginsburg's A Supermarket in California. It's an amazing poem. It's surrealist. It's queer. Like, he meets Walt Whitman in the grocery store, and they're, like, walking through, like, stealing food and eyeing grocery boys and just, like, having a wild ride, and you're there with them. Like you said, it gives you permission to, like, you know, the the food is glowing in his poem. It's, like, neon, and he's making commentaries on obviously the fifties consumer culture and that sort of thing. Um, but then we get to the end and it takes this turn, a very, another very quiet turn. So it was like totally gesturing to Ginsburg and he and Whitman leave the store and they stroll down this like the lost America of love. And now we're in again, Whitman's America, which was slavery. This is not a lost America of love. I mean, perhaps for Whitman it was because he lived in his own privilege and bubble. And I was shocked because I've read this poem a hundred times. I've read this poem since I was a teenager, but it hit me because I wanted to do the after I looked at it deeply. And I was like, wow, I'm not having fun anymore. And because it ends with an interrogative, it ends with a question like, what America did you have? But he's gesturing to Whitman who I care nothing about. We know what America he had. We're living it like today, the repercussions of it. But I was like, how fun would it be to imagine? First of all, me and my grandmother had a great relationship. She was like, a friend and a grandmother and just like a confidant. And we did go to grocery stores together, but I think she would be like deeply distrustful. She would be like, who is Joe? What is he trading? Why are they giving samples? This is weird. All the people are really happy. Like what is happening in, in this? But I love Trader Joe's, but it, it also brought me to a space where the speaker and myself had to interrogate my own privilege. This was my, self-described blue-black Texan grandmother who had in fact worked for a woman who hung herself. While my grandmother was working as a maid, my grandmother had to cut this woman down. She did not die. I kind of implied that she did in the poem as a little poet's revenge, but at the time my grandmother was working in the West, California, Arizona, I'm not, I don't remember, but it was sundown towns, meaning that she risked her life to save this woman. And she at the risk of herself possibly having to get lynched and describing having to wait for the bus and it getting dark and her being afraid. And my grandmother, both of my maternal grandparents had, I think, really harrowing lives in their young. I met them as grandparents and they were, you know, soft and retired and had very different spaces in the world. But their interactions in my same lifetime, even with white people, was very different. And I think with brands and things, that's why I think Trader Joe's would be like a very strange space for her. I feel like there would be places in the mall that I didn't realize as a teenager where she would say, oh, I'll just wait outside or, oh, I'll get a cookie. And I realized like in writing the poem, now in my thirties, my grandmother is gone. I think she felt like she didn't belong, even though I had access as her granddaughter. She did not. So the poem is dealing with a lot of different reckonings, like not only the privilege of Ginsburg to even be able to write a poem like that and hearken back to like, oh, the lost America of like chattel slavery and the Civil War, but also like my privilege that I had that I navigate in these stores with ease. It's one of my happy places. I'm like U.S. like I know every, tra- I've been to at least 20 different locations across the US. I know the brands, I eat the sample. Well, now we can't eat anything, but pre-pandemic I eat all the samples. Some have a wine bar. I mean, you know, so it was just like a very nuanced love poem to my grandmother and Trader Joe's, but it's also just an interrogation of like multiple privileges.
0: And on that note, I'd like to pause for just a moment and say you are tuned into Twice Five Miles Radio, Fertile Ground for Conversations Worth Listening to and Remembering. I'm your host, James Navé, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online wpvmfm.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations as well, like KCEI-FM, Cultural Energy Radio, Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. If you're interested in any of Walter Parks' music, I love the work he does. If you would like to reach out to me, I would love to hear from you. JamesNave.com Nave is spelled N-A-V-E You can email me through my website. Also, you will find some of my poetry there, which might inspire you. Please feel free to get in touch with me. I'd love to know your story. What's what's going on in your part of the world? Where are you? And what are you up to? If you'd like to know more about the name Twice Five Miles, TwiceFiveMiles.com is a good place to look. There you will find even more poetry and some books and other little tidbits that'll help you get your work over the finish line. TwiceFiveMiles.com. And now let's get back to our conversation with S. Aaron Batiste. We were talking about what a privilege it is to be able to shop at Trader Joe's and buy whatever you please. And we were also talking about how her grandmother might have wondered who this Trader Joe is. So now back to the interview. Staying on the subject of of your grandmother, and maybe we can get to know her a little bit better through you. She came from where and how old was she? What time frame did she live in? I know you said she worked as a maid in California and Arizona. As a young woman, did she come from Louisiana or did she go somewhere else before she landed in California and Arizona?
1: No, that was my father's family that was like the mixed race Creole I think very different family. My Both of my maternal grandparents did not know each other then, but they came from rural dirt roads in Texas. They didn't even have birth certificates. And she was born in 1927, 1928. There was, there's rumors even about her birthday and and my grandfather's birthday and they didn't have birth certificates. So we had to kind of like take them on their word. And for different reasons, they had to change their ages at different points in their life. So the story goes, and my grandmother told me this story, there wasn't much to offer her where she was. And so her family put her and another 14 year old girl. She was 14 years old on a one-way train and she went to Los Angeles and worked and they were boarding houses where domestic girls would rent a room. And they would have unofficial services, like the lady of the house would place them in these homes. But effectively, she was a minor. I mean, clearly, there, there were no laws and labor laws and were like very much not a thing. But she would have been very early 40s Los Angeles on her own with another 14-year-old. And she had, at that point never even been to a city in Texas. And so she had to navigate The West and California and Los Angeles and class and white people, I think she was from an all black rural place to now having to negotiate and navigate and earn a living and interact with not only white people, but white people that would have had enough access to have a domestic during that time frame.
0: Did she ever tell you any stories about how she navigated all that or was that something she kept quiet?
1: She did. I mean, she had, to, they were orators, her and her husband, my grandfather were just storytellers. And, and they just told me everything. And I just ate it up. I thought for a long time, their lives were made up. I was super spoiled, born in the 80s, middle class kind of Huxtable kid, you know, just like, what? And they both talked like locomotives. I mean, even the story about the, the woman that hung herself, it was a very small clip in other stories of stories of living in the West in segregation and sundown towns. You know, Arizona, I mean, California, the whole thing is still, as we've witnessed in the past year, needs to be completely reckoned. And so she talked a lot, more so in terms of stories. I think she was a stoic person. And so she did not talk a lot about how it made her feel. I can guess, especially in poetry, especially in the Trader Joe's poem, I was thinking about I mean, she told me that story very quickly. She was like, oh, did I ever tell you how Dr. Blank's wife hung herself? And I had to like, and I was like, what? And she would tell stories like that all the time. I think they just had to process trauma in in just very different ways. And as a survivor mode, even than myself, like I said, even in my own lifetime, I had even just time privilege above her. And so I feel like I knew her. I knew her stories. They're still with me. I write about her quite often. She makes appearances in poems and she was a Southern Baptist lady of just a remarkable personality and and voice and accent. She still managed to have a lot of joy, but there was I think a lot of unprocessed trauma. It just wasn't possible for her in her lifetime, I think tragically.
0: As you were so much around these elders you clearly loved, and they were clearly your teachers and your, your mentors. How did their stories influence the way you now navigate the culture?
1: This was a few years back that I wrote the Trader Joe's poem. So now i am be 41 in May. And so a little ways on. And I think they would find what I'm doing to be completely wild. They knew I was a reader. I would say I'm gonna be a writer, I'm gonna write books. And I think both of my grandparents were very supportive, but even that was just wildly beyond access, even in their imaginations. It was just kind of like, whoa. And then my father's family has a very different story. They were mixed race. My father was white passing. He had a lot of privilege. There was a lot of, it was just like a very different experience. And so, I had to kind of navigate within all of that. I feel like I learned a lot of resilience from my grandparents. I think it's wild that I get to do this, that I'm here speaking to you and that I'll get to go to the Wurlitzer property and just write poems for three months. I mean, 150 years ago, I might've been lynched for learning to read, much less to write a poem, much less to write a book.
0: For a little point of clarity, I know what you meant when you said your father was white passing. Just for people who may not know exactly what that means, could you tell folks what that means?
1: Sure. My father identified as black, but from his appearance and how others identified him or saw him in the world physically, others perceived to be white or European in his case. He had green eyes. He had straight black hair, very clean cut. Americana-looking gentleman, and I think racially, other people, and this is both black, white, and others, placed him as a white man. He did not identify that way, but was largely identified that way by outsiders.
0: And he wouldn't be the only one who had that experience in that situation, would he?
1: No, his family is very racially complicated and complicated in many ways. There's class divides and race divides, even within the immediate family, even within his siblings.
0: So we could just go on and on and on talking about family dynamics until the sun goes down a thousand times. But we don't have to wait for the sun to go down a thousand times to hear another poem. I'd love to hear more of your work, and I bet our listeners would too.
1: Sure. Uh, Let's see. Here we go. So I'll read the title poem from my chapbook. I've been reading it a lot because it has even helped me in this past year. Glory to all fleeting things. Glory that my house is not burning. Glory that I survived the two that did. Glory to all the text messages he sent to my disconnected number. They are still unread. To the pastas I learned to make in his absence. To steaming cups of sweet tea to tea time because my mother's mother raised me to stomach some southern politenesses glory to the craftsmen's real-life dollhouses which flourished my latest neighborhood streets glory to the black and vintage that held me together when i buried daddy at 20 granny 10 years after and everyone in between to the possibility of extraterrestrials another softer forms of life if you are already here glory to that too to paris which cradled me in lights and pastries after christopher was gone for good glory to all the butter to little old-fashioned ladies, y'all the real ones, godmamas and play aunties and church sisters who favor your testament old, velvet red, and twenty-two berettas, pearl-tipped to match your purse. To the queen palm, her feathery crowns shimmying against the sky. Glory that twins and suicides skipped my fragile genes. Glory that my little sister stayed behind in the desert instead of me. To all the lapels, pleats, pinafores, pin-tucking, petaled sleeves, silks, and sateens for giving me good tailoring and romance. Glory to my womanly body, four decades have shaped us magnificent. To tourmaline, citrine, amethyst, selenite. I splay you all naked on the window seal to recharge with each cycle of the moon. To the moon. Glory to the moon and its cycles, which remind me that nothing, not even my sadness, can last.
0: I love the way you read. You have Thank a very you. light touch, comfortable. You're not self-conscious about your voice or how you deliver it. Could you talk a little bit about that idea of how you deliver your work like you just did?
1: Absolutely. I'm I'm not a stage poet. I came to poetry and letters as a reader and a literary poet. And so I thought, I'm going to have to figure this out. I also have kind of a quirky accent where people are always like, where are you from? Like you have a southern accent. And I'm like, no, it's like a southwestern accent because there is like elements of west and elements of south. And they're I think are many people who grew up in the Southwest that may have a similar accent based on their family kind of background. And I feel like I inherited the South. So it is like very much a part of me, even though I've never lived there. And so I really write thinking about my accent and my voice and all of my sayings, like many of those sayings, that's kind of the most flattering of imitation to my grandmother who was Southern Baptist and went to church and they would do like these testimonials like where you give glory to God and you would talk about like all the things that God has done for you and I'm am not a religious person um I was raised in the church I have as many of my relationships, complicated relationship with God and religion, like organized religion. But, you know, I was thinking about the poem, like, how would she say that? Or even how would I say that? Because I'm also writing in my voice. I'm not writing in my grandmother's voice. So a lot of times I'm considering how I would say a word. And that's one of the t- determining factors between words, especially in revisions. and the first draft, of course, I'm just trying to get something onto the page, but I do about 30 to 50 revisions per poem. And so as I start to go in and make those precise edits and revisions, I'm thinking about how would I say a word, for example, atmosphere versus surroundings and how would that sound with the other words in the poem so i'm oftentimes writing to consider my own voice and i think the way that i set it up if you've heard me read or even if you haven't you'll kind of inevitably read kind of in my rhythm and flow i kind of even force the form to kind of make readers go along in my kind of dialect if you will
0: sometimes people say i'm not a stage poet as you did and i often think when people refer to the stage poets. They're talking about the the performativity the poet brings. Sometimes it's a forced performativity. Let's see how high we can swing on the wires before we do the loop-de-loop and catch the next rung on the trapeze, and there we go. And then there are other poets who are able to read like you did, and your work would fit very well on the stage. Not being the stage poet and yet having an emotional connection to the work so that the kind of performance that happens when you read is that beautiful performance of alchemy that happens between the listener and the reader, where suddenly we are both in this, this circle, this atmosphere, if you will, of the piece rather than the surrounding. Even though surrounding and atmosphere are both equally suitable words, depending on the choice. So I do appreciate your ability to bring the musicality to it without any effort at all. It's as if you're just whispering to the wind on a morning.
1: Yeah, thank you. I highly recommend to everyone, maybe not that many, but I'm a revision queen. I embrace revision I'm not afraid to have a bad first draft or 10th draft. And I go back and forth with words like right before I came on to speak with you, I was tinkering with something and I changed just one word and maybe I'll change it after this is over. And, and I also read aloud as I revise, which I find to be helpful. So even if I'm just reading, I live alone, so I'm just reading to myself, um, but I find even that changes it for you as the writer because it sounds different in your head or it sounds different. Like our conversational voices are different from our reading voices or performance voices, if you will. I was recently interviewing with someone and they said, wow, you have a different voice when you're reading, which, you know, we kind of all jokingly say is our poet's voice. But I said, it's the same as singers. Like Adele is not singing in that English Cockney accent like she has a different singing voice. So that's how I think of my voice. And I try to set it up that way because I am primarily a literary poet. Many people may not see me read, so they may only have the book or the page to sit with. And so I try to set it up that way so that they are able to enter through my musicality and my flow.
0: And I will say that as I've listened to you read both of these poems, your reading voice is very close to your speaking voice. You slow down a little more when you read and you get a little more excitable when you're talking, but it's similar to conversation. And I've always enjoyed the idea of presenting work in a conversational storytelling kind of way Doubt I would ever get to the point where my poems sound exactly like my conversations. Even so, you can still lean in that conversational direction if that's something you're moved to do. Moving back to the craft approach on the page for a moment, is there a point when you can just revise it too much and suddenly the thing disappears?
1: Yes, absolutely. I have just a quick anecdote where a friend called me on the phone and I was deep in revision on a poem. I don't even remember what poem it was. And I said, Girl, I'll have to call you back. The poem has just fallen like a souffle because I just watched the draft dissipate between my eyes a great thing, I had the opportunity to do um, Callaloo Creative Writing Workshop um, four years ago, almost at this point, and work with Vibe Francis and um, Gregory Pardlow. It's a premier Black literary journal for the listeners out there who may not be familiar, but they also have a creative writing workshop. But one of the large takeaways from that, Vibe Francis told me to start tracking my drafts. So I now have a Word document and I just changed the number. So I'm like VC. V8, V9. So if it does fall like a souffle, I can at least go back one draft or I can go all the way back to the beginning. Sometimes it gets so far ahead of me. Recently, I was trying to force a poem into quatrains. The poems, as you know, do what they want to do. But I was convinced this is going to be perfect four lines. And at one point, I just had to go back to the first draft because I had just done too much with line lengths and trying to get it into this four line kind of sequence that it did not want to be. So I always track the drafts. I definitely recommend, especially if if you are a person that's new to revising, just like change the number V7, V8. So when you do have those moments of failed revision or where it turns into like a fallen souffle, you can... Go have a path back
0: and even when the souffle falls you still have something sweet to taste so you may want to keep that fallen draft because you never know what's coming next
1: exactly exactly
0: (laughs) do you have any closing thoughts for us where are you headed next what's up with you
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, thank you so much, Nave, for having me. And thank you um, to the station and and all of the listeners for spending a little bit of time hearing about poems. It's, you know, our lives, but... So I definitely want to just send my gratitude to everyone for taking out a little bit of time um, to spend with me in the work. For me, as I shared with Nave, before we started recording, I just started actually a six-week residency. And so I'm in Western Michigan at um, Prairie Rond at the mill at Vicksburg. And they're at the beginning of a large reconstruction effort of a paper mill, of all things, but it will now be a hotel, a brewery, just a community space. Um, They're going to have a lot of different live arts and things. But I am here at the beginning. And so I spent a lot of time last week in a hard hat, climbing up and down ladders (laughs) all around the meal. And so I'm going to be filming some site-specific poems here at the meal. And then I'm going to do my first installation series, which will incorporate a lot of my text and imagery in, I think, an interesting way. We're going to see how the experiment goes. And then, of course, just working on my full-length, I do have a full-length collection underway called Toward that I hope to have a draft finished by the end of this year, especially with the opportunity to come up to Taos, to the Wurlitzer Foundation um, for three months. So that's the, the main thing, but also yeah, like I said, just kind of taking life as it goes. I think this last year, if anything, has taught us all not to plan <laughs> too too far in, in advance, because you know, when you make plans, God laughs is the quote, I think.
0: <laughs> I believe that is the I believe that is the quote. So you are you are definitely on the move. You've now entered your forties, which is your prime of life, and you're creating all kinds of work, poetry and other things as well. And who knows what tomorrow will bring?
1: Who knows? Maybe we'll be in a spaceship.
0: <laughs> S. Aaron Batiste, thank you ever so much for taking some time out of your day to spend some time with us. I really do appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: And that, my friends, brings us to the close of our conversation with the wonderful poet S. Aaron Batiste. We have just a little bit of time before the top of the hour, and I'd like to use that time to talk about the Duende. S. Aaron Batiste and I touched on the subject a bit in the conversation we had. I first came across that term a a number of years ago when a friend of mine recommended that I read Frederick Garcia Lorca's essay, Theory and Play of the Duende. Well, like so many recommendations I've had over the years, I filed it away somewhere in my brain and did no more than that with it. I just kept it there. Even so, over the years, I heard people in the poetry circles mention Duende. It was almost like it was a secret. Do you know about the Duende, they would say, Of course, I started to notice they weren't saying, do you know about Duende? They were saying, do you know about the Duende? As if it were a spirit that moved through you. Well, I later discovered that indeed, that's exactly what the Duende is. It's an unexplainable spirit, an essence, if you will, an essence of the earth. And you know it when you hear it. You hear it in some of the bluesy jazz songs that make you think of midnight or wandering through train stations at 3 a.m. Or perhaps it's the feeling you feel when you walk in a big city and take a turn down a small street that nobody's seemed to walk down in a while. There's an echo your feet make off the walls when you're walking down that street. Somewhere in that echo, you will find the dwinday You might also sense the duende when you're walking in the woods and you turn a corner around the path and you end up on the shady side of the mountain and you smell the loam of the forest. You might think, ah, the loam has the duende. In his essay theory and play of Duende, Lorca tells us that the arrival of the duende presupposes a radical change to all the old kinds of form, brings totally unknown and fresh sensations and the qualities of a newly created rose miraculous generating an almost religious enthusiasm perhaps religious perhaps something more mystical perhaps something in between if you go to youtube and listen to roshanna roland kirk's theme for the Ulypians, you will hear atmospheric music in an airport and in a train station. And you will hear a very wise woman talking about a musician, someone playing in the train station late at night. And you will hear this wise woman say that the music came out of nowhere as a warm song. Clearly the musician playing the warm song had the Duende. Perhaps the musician was the Duende. The wise woman will tell you the musician, the Duende, claimed the title of a Ulippian. And the Duende went on to say that the poets, artists, and musicians are all Ulippians too. And the tune the musician played in that train station late at night, the musician called that tune, A duty-free gift for the traveler. So I suppose, my friends, we're all Ulippians in one way or another because we can allow the the Duende to rise up from the earth and infuse its energy throughout our bodies. And however we express ourselves, when we allow that essence to come through us, we have more atmosphere to offer as a gift, a duty-free gift to the traveler. And as you heard in the interview with S. and Batiste, the Duende is something that can infuse every one of us and inform our work in ways that we could never imagine. As I mentioned earlier in this show, I learned about S. and Batiste because I was asked to review her work, which was submitted for the Wurlitzer Foundation in Taos. The foundation asked me to work with five categories originality vision technical ability subject matter and duende of course when i was reviewing the work i had no name for the poet i only had a number the number was 1741 which i later learned was s Aaron batiste and as i said earlier i gave her top scores across the board And now this fall, you will find S. Aaron Batiste in Taos writing poetry at the Wollertser Foundation in a wonderful cottage not too far from the center of town. And as we close, let's return for a moment to the final paragraph of Lorca's essay. The Duende. What is the Duende? Through the empty archway, a wind of the spirit enters blowing incessantly over the heads of the dead, in search of new landscapes and unknown accents, a wind that is the odor of a child's saliva, crushed grass and Medusa's veil, announcing the endless baptism of freshly created things. That was the final paragraph in Lorca's essay, Theory and Play of the Duende. And thank you, S. Aaron Batiste, for tuning our ears with your poetry in the direction of the Duende. And... On that note, I'd like to say thank you, everyone, for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio Fertile Ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting this show first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, FM, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. We do appreciate your work. WalterParks.com, if you would like to reach out to Walter. If you would like to reach out to me, JamesNave.com, Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, you can email me through my website. If you would like to know more about where the name Twice Five Miles came from, you will find that information on TwiceFiveMiles.com a website that has little tidbits that might help you get your work over the finish line, the stuff nobody tells you or teaches you. And so as we arrive at the end of our time together, I would like to encourage you to open your arms and let the day come in. I would also like to encourage you to simply enjoy the air around you, the sounds, what you feel, taste, touch, hear, and what you create. Let your creations be little gifts for the world, for the journey agents, the poets, the musicians, the travelers, and anybody else you might bump into. So once again, I really do appreciate you tuning in to Twice 5 Miles Radio. Thank you ever so much for your time. And I do hope you tune in again next time. Until then, I'll catch you somewhere down the line on that turnaround.